Welcome, listeners, to the latest episode of the Commonweal Podcast. I'm Matthew Sittman, Associate Editor of the magazine. And before we get started on this episode, we wanted to ask you a favor. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It's a really helpful way to help spread the word about the podcast. And if you do that, we even have a special offer in store for you. Gabriella? Yeah. So for people who take the time to review, we want to reward the time that you took to do so. So if you take the extra minute or so to take a screenshot of your review and then send it to our email account at editors, that's plural editors, at commonwealmagazine.org, we'll send you a free tote. And even if you say something mean on your review on iTunes, we'll still send you the tote as long as you screenshot it, because like Pope Francis, we believe in mercy. He was a Catholic and a political leader who didn't think that Catholicism was inherently incompatible with with democracy. He had no nostalgia for an idealized past, whether it was the Papal States or the Middle Ages. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. You just heard Massimo Fagioli talking about his article, Sturzo in Exile, which appears in our October theology issue. I'll be talking more with Massimo in a moment about this Italian priest who resisted fascism and helped reconcile the church with democracy. We have another interview, too. Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek talks with Mike Lavelle, president of Marquette University, who speaks about the evolving state of Catholic higher education, from changes to core curriculum to programs geared toward increasingly diverse student bodies and new attention to student issues like mental health and trauma. But first, take a listen to Massimo, who really explains clearly why we should pay attention to a figure like Luigi Sturzo today. So Massimo, why don't you give the audience some some basic information on Don Luigi Sturzo? Don Luigi Sturzo was an Italian priest uh, from Sicily who was born in that Italy, of the post-Vatican I and the post-Union Italy between 1861 and 1870 at the expense of the Papal States, the new kingdom of Italy that had Rome as its capital. And it was a very particular time for, for Italian Catholics and especially for Italian priests to be active socially and politically in Italy because the nostalgia for the papal states officially wasn't over yet. So all popes until uh, basically World War I had told Catholics that they shouldn't be part, uh, active part of the the political life of of the country because they didn't recognize the legitimacy of the Italian kingdom. And so Sturzo took a very different turn because especially after World War One, the end of World War One, nineteen nineteen, came up with the idea of a party for Catholics. Mm-hmm. Because just a few years before, the o- official prohibition for for Catholics to be part in uh, political life, which means do not vote, don't mm-hmm. be elected, right, was over. And so Sturzo founded the Popular Party in 1919, mm-hmm. which was the party of, of, of Catholics, but not in a confessional way. It was open to, uh, to non-Catholic Christians, very few, uh, to tell the truth, and to all those who were afraid 
in Italy in those very violent years between World War One and the mid-1920s for the rise of uh, violent ideologies, communism on one side and fascism on, on the other side. And Suter was the most uh, famous mm-hmm. victim of the agreement between the Vatican and the fascist regime by Mussolini years before the, the Concordat of 1929 because Mussolini and Pope Pius XI agreed on the idea that they couldn't have a fruitful cooperation with this Italian priest uh, meddling right. in politics. And so the first step was to abolish all political parties, in- included uh, the Popular Party, and that meant also the exile of Sturzo in those years, 1924, when uh, the fascist regime was uh, leading a campaign of assassination of his political enemies. Massimo, you make a great point in the in the piece, and I just want to pick up on this, uh, that the Vatican gave him a warning at first when he had started the, 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 the popular party. And they said, if you make a mistake, the blame will fall on you. And I guess the blame did fall on him. Is that right? Sure. It was more than a blame because the whole situation has changed be, uh, be, between 1919 when he created the party when fascism was still a very small uh, fringe movement. In 1924, which is when fascism becomes the major political party force in Italy. So he made the mistake in, in the sense that he had the foresight to see that the major obstacle for fascism in Italy was the Catholic Church. Uh, because you could get rid easily of the political opponents of socialists, of, 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 of communists. It was more difficult to get rid of the Vatican, of the, of the Pope. So he became the victim of the, on the altar of the, of the entente, of the agreement between the Vatican and Mussolini, and interestingly, he left Italy, but he didn't left uh, the fight. He didn't leave the fight. So he led the fight on different terms, in different ways from abroad, with a very interesting uh, depth of, of analysis. He never believed that Mussolini was uh, the counterweight or the tool to to fight against communism. He, 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 he always warned Catholics uh, against that illusion. Right. And I guess around this time, it was in uh, 1924, so amid this assass- assassination campaign, he, w- he took himself to London, is that correct? And uh, that's where he did much of his work from in that 16 years or so? Right. Because so what was particular of Sturzo and made him different from many other Italian Catholic leaders was his, his proximity to the British uh, world, English-speaking world, because most Italian intellectuals were historically closer to France or Germany. And so that was, it was good for him to, to have this context. And it was interesting for him to be in London between World War One and World War II because he could understand a few interesting things of the changing world, especially what would happen 
when the British Empire would collapse, which was something that many people were talking about. And that was interesting in his talks and discussions at Chatham House, because it was a group of people who was already thinking about a global world that was post-imperial. So what kind of world order there should be when the empires are gone. And he gave an interesting Catholic perspective on this, on this issue of the new world order, especially in terms of multilateralism, of the issue of peace and war, and, and of the issue of, of the participation of the people in political life, which is something that now we take for granted. But, but between World War I and World War II, most European countries, for example, women could not vote. And so that was a Catholic uh, contribution to the problem of, of, the, of the new uh, coming uh, world order. You mentioned in the article that uh, upon Italy's entry into the war, uh, Sturzo's position in London became precarious, and he found himself having to flee once more. And uh, he came to the United States in 1940. And I'm wondering if one of the things I find particularly interesting about your piece is sort of your little quick history of Sturzo's time in the U.S. and his reception among uh, American Catholics, and particularly uh, the Italian immigrant community in the United States at that time. Well, it was very interesting because, so one difference was that the Catholic population in the U.S. was not comparable with London, of course, so much bigger, but also because it came at a time when the U.S. was still deciding what to do with the war, also because within the U.S. and also within U.S. Catholics, there was a, a division about what to make of Mussolini and of the fascist regime. It, it could be quite popular among not just ordinary Catholics, but also some uh, visible leaders like Father Charles Coughlin, for example, and, and also some prelates and some intellectuals who saw in Mussolini the big opponent uh, uh, against socialism, Marxism, and also the one who had given the Vatican the Concordat of 1929, the solution of the so-called Roman question. And one of the interesting contributions of Sturzo from the U.S. and in his articles in Commonwealth was to disabuse Catholics that the Concordat of 1929 uh, had baptized fascism. He never harbored any illusion that Mussolini could become uh, a credible leader because he saw very early that the alliance between Mussolini and Hitler was not just instrumental, but there were some commonalities in terms of racism, for, for example. And those were not popular positions to, to take in 1940 and so before the U.S. joined the war effort and before ca U.S. Catholics and many American, Italian American Catholics were involved in the war. So he said things earlier that, than most people on the real nature of the fascist regime and on the, on the inevitability of a clash between a Christian, Catholic, uh, democratic culture 
and fascism. Mm. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, Massimo, his his work for Commonweal, and you cite a number of Commonweal pieces uh, in your article on Sturzo. In particular, uh, I want to uh, get around to, since we're sort of moving through the his chronology, he, he wrote a, uh, an essay in Commonweal in 1943 called The Coming League, in which he imagined a new League of Nations and actually used the term United Nations in the fr- framework of a new covenant. And I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that uh, Commonweal piece and what Sturzo had in mind when he was formulating these these ideas. Well, as I said, it was part of his reflections on the New World Order after the end of the of, of the colonial empires. But there's something more because we tend to think now that Catholic Church was in favor of the UN or the League of Nations. That's not quite true for that period because originally Catholics and also popes, I mean, cardinals, bishops, they thought the the League of Nations and the idea of Wilson after World War I was fundamentally a Protestant idea uh, or a Freemason idea. And Catholics had already their own UN, which was the papacy. And so there was this skepticism or this rejection that was really part, especially until the end of World War II, that we don't need the UN because that is basically taking away from the papacy the the high moral magisterium on world affairs, peace, and so on. So that was unusual for a Catholic to say publicly, and that was one of the first uh, contributions to the Catholic culture of internationalism, of bilateralism, and I would say that what he said in the early 40s uh, came to fruition in 1965 when uh, when Paul VI visited the United Nations in October during Vatican II. That was something that not many people expected, looking at how Catholics had looked at these international organizations in the 1920s, 30s. Let's talk about Sturzo in the in the context of his of his role, in, I guess, as a political priest. There's an interesting aspect here in that Sturzo's uh, the diocesan phase for Sturzo's uh, process for his beatification is concluded, and there's possible canonization ahead. So, how do we think about Sturzo as a political priest and this idea of possible canonization? Well, it's an interesting cause uh, because. Um, when you beatify or when you canonize uh, a, a, a political leader, uh, you can easily be accused of canonizing a party or a, a, an ideology. So that that puts him in a special uh, category because usually we so we have saints that are bishops or monks, nuns, priests that are are essentially nonpartisan. Well, Sturzo was partisan by definition, but here this is why I, I, I think this cause is, is interesting, because his partisanship was not for a particular kind of Catholic culture or, or ideology, was essentially anti-totalitarian, anti-fascist, anti-violence. So that is the, the value of this. And under Pope Francis, if that happens under Pope Francis, it would be interesting because it would emphasize again the, the anti-populistic, anti-demagoguery, and anti-ideological 
value of of of, of Francis teaching, which is not really about blessing one particular party, but it it's about warning Catholics about what is troubling on the horizon. So we will see. It would be a very Italian saint, as it has happened often, but is less Italian or less parochial than than others. It it would send signals, I believe, not just to Italian Catholics. You know, uh, Massimo, uh, this sounds like a good segue to sort of why should why should we think about Sturzo now? We we say you say in the article we we characterize him as having helped reconcile the church with democracy, and that seems sort of a particularly Pressing an urgent uh, note these days. Why? Why uh, should people be thinking about uh, Luigi Sturzo today? Because he was a Catholic and a political leader who didn't think that Catholicism was inherently incompatible with the, with democracy, with uh, constitutional rights. Uh, he didn't think that there was an exclusivity to the the Catholic idea of uh, nation, of state, he looked way beyond the disaster of 1870, of the, of, of the collapse of the papal states. He had no nostalgia for an, an, an idealized past, whether it was the papal states or the Middle Ages. And he was facing violent ideologies who were basically expressing the discontent for the social political order of the the 20s by inciting violence and uh, encouraging people to tear down everything. And then we will rebuild somehow. That was not Sturzo's idea. He was a moderate, but he strongly believed in the progressive idea that there is a more advanced balance between Catholic faith and uh, political modernity. So that is something that is very interesting for us today in the U.S., but not only, because there seems to be the idea that to be more Catholic, you have to step back on the front of rights or constitutional rights or human rights. Uh, that is not what the a, example of, of Sturzo tells us. So, uh, of course, I mean, there is Vatican II that has updated enormously whatever Sturzo said. But as an example, uh, he's an example of um, of a priest and a theologian and, and a thinker who never bet his money on the worst instincts of the people. That says a lot to us, I think. Massimo, I want to thank you very much for being here today to talk about it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can read all of Massimo's article, Sturzo in Exile, in our October issue. That's the theology issue, which also includes a piece on Pope Francis by Austin Ivory, Eileen Markey on the Nicaraguan Church, and an interview with esteemed theologian David Tracy by Kenneth Woodward. Support for Commonweal comes from Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Candler offers a master's degree with a focus on Catholic studies. 
preparing leaders and scholars for ministry in the Catholic Church and research in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Benefit from the resources of top-ranked Emory University in Atlanta, one of the most diverse and rapidly expanding centers of Catholicism in the country. Build ministry skills through hands-on training in parish, school, hospital, or nonprofit settings. Prepare for doctoral study with world-renowned faculty. Learn from top scholars and guest lecturers through Candler's Aquinas Center of Theology. Take advantage of generous scholarship support. 100% of Master of Divinity students received scholarships last year. For details, log on to candler.emory.edu slash commonweal. Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek is here with me. Hi, Dominic. Hello, Griffin. And you got to talk with Mike Lavelle, president of Marquette University. I did. And, you know, it was really interesting. Dr. Lavelle is trained as an engineer, but he's got a deeply humanistic approach to the work that he does as president of Marquette University. Not only has he revamped the core curriculum, but he's drawn on his personal experience of childhood trauma as a way of understanding what the role of a Jesuit university should be in 21st century America, which I found quite compelling. Yeah, sounds good. Let's take a listen. Dr. Lavelle, I thought I'd begin just by asking you, what's changed during your tenure at Marquette? Well, a lot has changed. And I think the most significant change is really is in what's impacting higher education in general. I think that you know, as someone who's been in the academic community for most, if not all, my career, we're seeing forces on you know, higher education that we haven't seen before. We have people questioning the value of higher ed. The cost structure continues to be significant challenges for students and their families to pay for education. We see there's increased competition, and now we're facing decreasing demographics. And so all of these things have placed higher ed in a state of turbulence where we're seeing challenges that, quite frankly, 10, 15 years ago, we did not see. And certainly in my time in Marquette, the challenges we face today are different than they were, you know, five years ago when I started. Mm -hmm. And what would you say is the most evident change that you've had to confront or the, the biggest challenge that Marquette has faced? So I think what we've seen over the last few years, and I, I know particularly those in, in the Northeast and the Midwest are, have been the most impacted, is we're seeing universities close at significant rates for the first time really in the history of our country. And so when we think about that, you know, it, things around recruiting students, it's becoming very competitive. The financial aid packages that are offered to them, they're making decisions based on maybe $500 a year. You know, families want to know that when their students graduate, they're going to get good jobs. And so, you know, there's a lot of stress and tension placed on uh, higher institutions to ensure that students and their families are getting that return on investment. And we need to really demonstrate that. Is there something that as a specifically Jesuit institution has guided your thinking in, for instance, how to reach out to students of less economically advantaged backgrounds? How is the kind of Jesuit specificity of Marquette's mission impacted those kinds of decisions. So Marquette was founded for first-generation immigrants. And as a Jesuit institution, we have to stay true to that mission. And so we still reach out and try to educate students from very diverse backgrounds, as many first-generation students, you know, as we can bring onto the campus is something that we embrace. And so, for example, we should be become a Hispanic-serving institution. We've had significant increases during my time here, about five percentage point increase in the number of Hispanic students that have come to Marquette. We have the most diverse set of students on this campus than we've ever had in our history. And so we're, we're really trying to stay true to that and also knowing how important first generations really are to the future of our country and even the role that we can play in educating those students. 
And how has that played out on campus? What's been the response of the student body? So it's interesting because as your student body changes, the campus needs to change. And so one of the challenges we have is ensuring that students from every walk of life, when they come on this campus, they feel supported. They feel like they have a home and is primarily a, a white institution in, in the past in our history. You know, as we get more diverse student populations, we need to think about different ways to support them. And so that's been an ongoing process and we have to have a dialogue with the students. We don't want students to come here from diverse backgrounds and feel isolated. So we need to find out, you know, what supports they need. And we have, we've changed the way uh, we've done things. This is 50 year anniversary of the Equal Opportunity Program which was started at Marquette, which became actually the federal trio program. And so that was actually founded here. And so we're, we're celebrating that this year. But again, we need to think about, you know, what is the EOP program, you know, phase two, or how can we be innovative and creative so that students from diverse backgrounds, particular students can be successful in ways that we know uh, that they have, uh, can be extremely successful once they leave our walls. Yeah, and I know that Marquette is very intentional about its relationship both with the city of Milwaukee, where it's located, and globally. And could you talk about some of the initiatives that exist to connect Marquette students to the city of Milwaukee, but also abroad? As you know, Jesuit institutions, we have a, our mission is to produce men and women who life, live their life in service to others. And so service becomes an extremely important component of really everything we do. And it, it really starts in the classroom where our students have service learning opportunities. So they actually get credit for the service they provide. And what's important is not just going out and serving others, but then what's great about the service learning is that then they have reflection and think about how it changes themselves and how it changes the way they view the world. And so there's the academic piece as well. Then we have all kinds of student groups and organizations that are out volunteering, not only in the city, but around the world during their breaks. Uh, we have a group called Midnight Run that serves at 15 different sites every day in our, in our city. But then on our breaks, we have Global Brigades, which is the largest student-run service organization in the world, was actually founded at Marquette. And we typically go to Nicaragua or other parts of the world where we, it's really a, a healthcare that we're providing these countries. And we have something even Mardi Gras, where we have students going down to New Orleans, been going down some of the damage they've had with the hurricanes and rebuilding the city. So so that part of it as well. But then we also have a focus on our city and really trying to get the assets we have at the campus. And that is the faculty as well. And, and we, we, we call it the scholarship of engagement. So we really want our, our faculty to be engaged with our community and use the talents and resources to address many of the disparities we face in Milwaukee and, and kind of use the intellectual capital and some of the other things to work with others to help understand what some of the needs are and, and really help those individuals within the city be able to lift themselves up and you know grow into a better situation. Could you talk about what kinds of, not just what kinds of courses students are required to take, but what styles of learning it opens them up to? And what's specific about the core curriculum at Marquette? The former core curriculum, you know, you were required to take so many theology and so many philosophy classes and courses in liberal arts and humanities, but you could take those courses, but not necessarily get the exposure that we wanted them to get to so that they would go out to make a difference in the world. And so, you know, much of what they, they learn, you know, when they go through these things are, are how to have hard conversations about hard topics, uh, learning about racism, learning about segregation, learning how decisions have been made in this country that maybe didn't have a level playing field for everyone and how that's impacted others and how we can actually, you know, help individuals heal and grow out of their situations. And a lot of times, you know, we don't want to shy, have them shy away from those difficult conversations. And that's really what the core is about, is how we can have students go into a world which is messy 
and find ways to navigate to make positive change in that world. And that's really what the core curriculum is about and the fundamental to being a Jesuit institution. Hmm. And I know you, Dr. Lavelle, have had some of your own experience personally with healing and growth in a world that's difficult and messy. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing the personal perspective you bring to your understanding of the notion of trauma and resilience. It's interesting because about 18 months or so ago, I came to the realization that one of the things that we need to do to address the disparities in Milwaukee is to address generational trauma that people have experienced. And so we know that brain science has come a long way. So we have a great understanding that particularly children, when they experience trauma, how that impacts them you know, throughout their entire life. And also that, that there's also healing that can occur that can help individuals heal from that trauma. As I learned about how many of the disparities, whether they be about education or economic development or healthcare systems or, or criminal systems, the people who experience trauma, potential success in life goes significantly down by the more trauma they experienced. As I learned about kind of the science behind this, I reflected on myself and, you know, there's, an, there's something called the adverse child experiences test. You can take, take 10 questions and get a score. And when I took it, I, I, I got a five out of 10. And the your expectancy to do be successful in life, if you have a four or more on that test, goes way down. And so it allowed me to reflect on, well, why when I maybe when my family unit didn't provide all the guidance support that I needed, was I still successful? And I was really blessed to grow up in a small town where I had a lot of caring adults. I had coaches. I had teachers. I had my friend's parents. I had people at our church that, you know, really supported me and looked after me and made me know I was cared for when maybe I was not, you know, having the best experience growing up. And being in a city where we have significant disparities, you know, I also realized that if you grew up in the inner city of Milwaukee, you, maybe you don't have those networks around you like I had in my small town. And so really, it's become somewhat of a passion of my wife and myself to really find a way we can build a support network to, first of all, help buffer the trauma that youth are experiencing, but also help individuals like adults, like myself, that experience trauma heal and so that they can be the best versions of themselves. And I know you're spearheading a major conference that's going to take place in October of 2019. And I'm wondering if you could speak just a bit about that conference, what it entails, who the key speakers are, and what you're most looking forward to at the conference. So this is the second year we've done this, and this is really part of the initiative we call Scaling Wellness. And in the second year, uh, we hope to get upwards of 2,000 people to really learn about how we help heal our city, and particularly in, in the face of trauma. And we're partnering with a group called STC who really focus on addressing poverty issues within our city. And so we have a number of keynote speakers that are coming to really think about how you know, we can have hope come, come out of this and how we can help our community heal as, as best as possible. So again, we have speakers, uh, Dr. Shalil Jane, who is an internationally recognized psychotherapist and PTSD specialist, and she's a, a trauma scientist with the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. You know, having speakers from a national perspective to come talk to us about, you know, recognizing when individuals have experienced trauma and how we help them heal. And to have, again, if we have 2,000 people from our city at these meetings and can take what they've learned in within their sphere of influence, you know, really help others is, is something that I think is, is, uh, is, is really great and important. I know university students find themselves increasingly in crisis. So it's great that that there's a university that's paying attention to these kinds of issues. Oh, no. And, you know, and the reality is, is that one in three college students today are, are being seen for a mental health you know, illness and whether it be anxiety, depression or some, some other form of mental illness. We really need to help 
build that resilience. So we need to give students not only, you know, address when they have something significant or acute in their lives, but also hopefully we can help them address some of the issues so they don't get to that stage and give them the tools to be successful and help them be, you know, as healthy as possible. Yeah. And it's all the more meaningful to have the university president saying, uh, you know, I too have had experience with this. That's really meaningful. That's really moving. Dr. Mike Lavelle, thank you so much for talking with us today. I know you've got busy appointments to run off to, so we're very grateful for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me, and it's great talking to you. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.